Friday. It is the week of September 4th, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we're going to focus on one topic and really one topic only, and that is, for the first time in over a decade, is another promotion rising to truly challenge the UFC. First, we're going to talk about the current business state of the UFC. We'll do a mini SWOT analysis, talk about how things have changed for them given the antitrust lawsuit, uh, their competitors and that environment shifting, a couple of strengths and weaknesses that they've acquired in the past couple months and years. Uh, lots to unpack there. Then we'll move on to the Saudi investment in the PFL. That's been huge news all around, has affected Endeavor stock and WWE stock because of the merger coming up. Um, lots to unpack there. A huge influx of cash for PFL. I'm going to give you an idea of what I think they'll use that money for and dissect a couple of statements that have been made by Don Davis and others that may tip their hand in terms of their short-term strategy, at least for that money and moving forward. Then we're going to do an update on PFL acquiring Bellator. Lots of rumors still flying around, lots of different reports. I'm going to let you know what I've heard and seen and where I think that is right now as well as the likelihood of that actually happening because it's not a done deal yet necessarily so we've got to kind of run through both scenarios of them you know purchasing bellator and maybe not purchasing bellator and that will lead us to the big question which is can the pfl truly challenge the ufc for dominance in the mma market lots to unpack there i've seen a lot of what I would call hot takes. I've seen some more reasonable takes, but so many pieces that we need to take into account. I will give you an idea of what the different scenarios are and what I think is the most likely scenario, both short-term and long-term, but so much to go over because there's a lot of cherry picking right now in terms of what people are saying can or cannot happen in this scenario. We need to look at everything. And that's basically what this podcast is all about for this episode. Uh, after that, we will look at a possible scenario of if the UFC is challenged or other things start to happen in the UFC, could Endeavor sell its stake in the promotion? I've seen this question brought up a couple times, a couple different people. I think there's a couple articles about it. I'm going to give you my take on that and how Endeavor is possibly already prepping for that possibility. So I'll break that down. Last but not least, we are going to do a quick hit on the Jake Paul, Nate Diaz pay-per-view buys uh, from boxing because that is out. It does kind of tie into PFL because I'm sure Paul will you know, fight for the PFL given his relationship with them. But again, tons to unpack here. Timestamps in the bottom as always. And let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. When it comes to the current state of the UFC... Uh, first thing I want to do is go through another mini SWOT analysis. It's not going to be an in-depth one like I did. I can't even remember how long ago on this podcast. It's just going to be kind of an update from where they were before and new strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, aka SWAT. Uh, UFC has in the past couple months and maybe like going as far back as a year, short-term SWAT from our last update. Um Right now, the UFC stands in a very interesting place, right? The antitrust lawsuit class certification is definitely a threat to them, something that I'm sure they had hoped 
wouldn't come to fruition, especially given Judge Bulware's seemingly how do I want to phrase this? Pretty much tipping his hand saying that he was siding with the plaintiffs on this one. Um, that's never a good sign, right? Now, there's still a ton of uh, hoops to jump through on that front. I know a lot of people were taking that as, wow, this is a major victory. It's a huge thing. It, it is a big deal. It got class certified. But as we expected, the UFC has filed for appeal. Um, given the fast track nature that this trial is now set on where they're looking at setting a trial date in March or April of next year. The appeals court is going to have to decide pretty shortly whether or not they will take up this case. I feel it is likely they will, right? Given the implications, this is a major company. Uh, this is using, you know, wage share and certain, certain models that really are untested. So while Bulware was pretty, you know, forthright in his you know opinions on the matter it's not necessarily backed up by hard precedents or data in some cases um paul gift from forbes uh, does a fantastic job of breaking that down in his latest forbes article talking about you know some of the routes that the ufc will take um in their appeal i highly recommend looking into that but given the implications of all this, I can't imagine the appeals court passes this up. It's possible. Don't get me wrong. And I know some people are saying it's a coin flip. Uh, some people are saying, eh, maybe not just because of the time frame. Yeah, those are things to consider. But it, this to me seems like something where an appellate judge would want to take it and make their stamp uh, on their record, right? Just like any other profession, a lot of judges you know, want to move up want to get called up to the <clears throat> a higher appeals court or to, you know, the Supreme court one day, of course. And a lot of times the most likely way to do that, although things have changed in the U S politics world, obviously. Um, it, but it's, it's making and hearing important cases, making rulings that have a lasting effect on, you know, certain areas and industries, just, just like anything else. If you, if you're a lawyer and you, you know, work on a big case and you win, whether or not it was based on, you know, preponderance of evidence or blah, blah, what have you, it could, it could be the most one-sided case in history. If you're the lawyer on that case and you win and it's got enough flair and, you know, attention on it, it's going to help your career. Same situation here. And this is certainly a case that is gaining more mainstream media attention now with the class certification, with the things that have come out from, you know, that latest conference, status conference on trying to set a trial date soon and all this, it's a big deal, especially as the gig economy comes under fire in so many ways. And, you know, there's this constant back and forth with unionization and things going on. It, it only makes sense that this is going to have a ton of eyes on it. So I can't imagine the appellate court doesn't pick it up. Now, again, doesn't mean it will, but that's a big threat for the UFC if they don't. If they do, um, that actually helps them, especially given some of the models and things that are there. But 
it, it's still not a slam dunk. So no matter which way this goes, the classification is a threat to the UFC. That's a new threat that they are taking very seriously, I'm sure, because that between injunctive relief, between actually having to go to a trial, which I'm sure they would try and settle if it came to that point, um, it, it's still going to hurt them. It's not a good thing, right? So that's their biggest threat out there. Um, another threat on the horizon is PFL, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It is a much smaller threat, though, than the antitrust lawsuit case. There are so many things, and we'll get into this in the later segment, about can the PFL actually challenge the UFC? There are so many things that have to go a certain way for that to truly come to fruition, especially in the short term. And while the PFL is a part of that, they, they are a much smaller threat right now than the antitrust lawsuit, right? PFL is just getting the, this influx of cash. They are going to build out other leagues in other places, which we'll get into. They're not going to be able to make moves in the next four to six months that could greatly impact the UFC's business model. It, it's just not going to happen that I, that I can see anyway. This antitrust lawsuit though, I mean, if that goes to trial, if injunctive relief is granted, which is again, I think still a long ways off, despite what some people are saying. Um, I do agree with, I think it's, I, I think it's Paul gift um, of the show money. Uh, podcast who said that and you know some of what jason cruz i also believe said um that i i can't see injective relief coming super quickly it's possible but i think it's still pretty far off nevertheless if the appellate court denies the ufc's appeal for whatever reason that immediately puts pressure on the ufc to settle and to basically come to some sort of agreement with the fighters that insulates them from going to trial and possibly dealing with damages and all that fun stuff, right? I mean, you you never want to risk, we said this from the beginning with this trial, you never want to actually roll the dice with a jury or a judge and, and, you know, when it comes to a large lawsuit, you, you never want to do that. Um, it, it's just not the best move because you never know how it's going to exactly going to go. And if UFC lost for whatever reason, then that changes everything overnight, right? If, if a verdict comes down that awards the type of damages the plaintiffs are seeking from the UFC, that whew, that's a whole another scenario. Again, we'll get into later on, but that's their biggest threat. PFL is a threat, although it's much smaller and it's more of, you know, I would say 12 months out plus as a threat. Um, those are their big threats right now. The overall political climate is also not great, right? Um, NLRB, we've talked about this before. They've made changes under the Democrat-controlled administration. Uh, they're looking at putting out new rules. They've already put out a couple new rules for things that you know, put more pressure on companies uh, and give a little bit more opportunity for people to unionize it in this constant back and forth in the gig economy of what classifies someone as an employee, uh, you know, what can an employee 
do or not do to fight back against what they believe are unfair policies and wage suppression. Right now, the tide is turning a little bit more towards pro-union. I don't know that it will actually get anywhere. I mean, there's still a bunch of legal cases and other things going on to that effect where things could easily be neutralized. But it's clear the Biden administration in the U.S. is much more pro-union than uh, the Trump one, right? I mean, they're not like all the way over to the left, like a Bernie Sanders administration would be or something of that nature, but they are still making moves that would support workers' rights, you could say. That's still something the UFC has to keep an eye on, right? It probably doesn't affect them again in the short term, maybe not even in the long term, but still something they're going to keep on their radar, uh, obviously, the UFC employs certain lobbyists. They're going to be using that to, you know, at least keep a pulse on it because they'll definitely want to fight back if suddenly, you know, things start to come up about, well, if you're technically this, that means you're an employee because that's the last thing UFC and Endeavor want, right? Um, so those are the big threats for that. See, those are the three the rise of workers' rights and, and turn turning towards union by far the smallest and and a very minimal threat that just has to be observed. Uh, PFL, sh- sure, but antitrust lawsuit, the biggest one. Strengths. Obviously, their main strengths that they've had established forever are just the dominance in the MMA space. Um, you know, the, the type of profit they're generating. Some newer strengths are, you know, some of the deals that they've made with sponsorships, uh, the fact that, wow, I don't know if you can believe the pay-per-view numbers that Henry Cejudo and Sean O'Malley have talked about, right? But um, I, I, in fact, I wouldn't give credence to either the 350K buys for UFC 292 or the 520. Um, probably in that range, I would guess, but I don't know for sure. And until we get a verified source, I'm not trusting the UFC or whoever Cejudo's source is. Um, But O'Malley as champion is big, right? I mean, his merch sales have always been strong. He's always been pretty popular. Him winning the belts in the fashion he did was big. The fact the UFC released that clip, as I talked about on last show, that's huge. Um, That's very good for them. That gives them a potential crossover star and at least a bigger draw than Algermain in that position. And that's always a boost. Uh, Wei Lee winning and, and, you know, dominating Amanda Lemos, uh, which was kind of expected, right? Um, that's a huge boost for them, especially in the Chinese market. We've, I've talked about this over and over again. Wei Li was fast tracked into a title shot. Uh, she has been giving multiple opportunities that a lot of other champs don't get, right? Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying, I mean, she's obviously in an elite tier. She she is deserving in terms of an actual, you know, from a, a, a actual ability standpoint, clearly deserving of those opportunities. But you can see in strawweight the same way that they've kind of pushed Alex Pereira to go up to 205, you know, I very much wonder if there wasn't some push on the UFC end for Rose to go up to 125, 
especially because Rose has beaten Whaley twice. I mean, she said in an interview, now she's, you know, no, she's better than her. It's fine, blah, blah, blah. Or if they do it again, it'll be at 125. They can say that. And, and maybe that is true. But honestly, I think there is a, I do not think it is coincidence, right? That suddenly when in the past you would have somebody who loses a controversial decision or somebody be like, oh, I'm going to go back and get my belt, especially against somebody that they've beaten twice, right? Like Rose has beaten Whaley twice. Why would you not go back and try and get the money and belt again? Uh, Pejera, same deal. Like he's beaten Adesanya I mean, te- technically four times, right? Or three, four. Like if you count the kickboxing, all that stuff. And, you know, in the second fight up until he got knocked out, he was probably up on the scorecards. If you're going to, you know, count it that way. Like, I mean, he was definitely doing some more uh, stuff in that regard. And he even said too, like he, he actually said he would fight Adesanya again at 185, which makes a little bit more sense. But I don't think it's a coincidence that those guys, both of them have moved up and are just like, oh, I'm done with that division because yeah, maybe, but it it seems weird to me. I would not be shocked if there's some sort of, you know, behind the scenes conversation or incentive for them, right? Maybe the UFC is like, look, these guys are too big of moneymakers for us. Please move up so we don't have to deal with you knocking them off. Um, and I don't know what that entails. I don't know if that's actually happening, but I wouldn't be shocked, I guess is my point. Um, but the strength there is that you've got, again, popular champions reigning in their division. You have now have Whaley, O'Malley, and uh, Adesanya and Jones as four champions who are going to draw, probably. Um, and, and that's big, right? That's very, very big. It's important. Uh I think if Oliveira ends up beating Makachev, I think that'll be a big deal. Um, You know, if Gaethje gets another title shot, I think he like there. It is no coincidence that the quote unquote popular star power fighters are getting more opportunities than not. That's where I'll leave it at. And that's a strength for them. That's a strength for the UFC that they are able to successfully do that to some extent, whether it's by fighters truly giving, you know, people they've beat just a pass and moving up or whether they're, you know, finding a way to push people in a certain way. Their, their star power is definitely more there than it's been in a while is what I'll say across the entirety of the organization. You still don't have a McGregor right type draw or a Rousey type draw, but those are, you know, once, generally once in in a forever right we we've never seen anybody with those types of numbers that Rousey and McGregor both did and outside of those numbers right you had Jones other than that there wasn't like a ton of other divisions that were drawing consistently there weren't other champions during McGregor and Rousey's time where they were drawing crazy numbers or doing amazing buys like that just wasn't the case so having four champs right now have drawing potential and you know, continued engagement and where if they keep winning, that's probably going to only further their star power. That's big. That's a big strength for them. Um, when it comes to weaknesses, I don't think the UFC has a lot of cash flow, right? Um, yes, they've made a ton in profit and, you know, 
you have all of the EBITDA and, and financial statements that say that, but a, a big piece of all this and something that, you know, Rob Macy, um, or Mazzy, apologies, Rob, uh, has talked about, um, on, you know, a circuit post UFC antitrust lawsuit class certification has been the fact that, you know, the UFC has taken out a lot of loans just to pay out dividends, which is true. I mean, and this has been reported on for a while. John Nash, bloody elbow has reported on it for years. Um, but according to Maisie, they have a expert that they brought in that is completely sealed and will hopefully get unsealed later this year. Uh, that talks about, you know, if you look at actual money in money out, despite the UFC saying like, well, these damages are ridiculous. This is so much of their profit that the plaintiffs are asking for. But a lot of the loans and what UFC would classify as debt is just, you know, a ton of money set aside for owners. They have that loan from, I think 2007 or whatever. It was like $300 million where 199 million went to pay out a dividend to people. Like that's huge. And that's kind of what the UFC has been doing for a while now. So, well, they are still in great financial standing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say, like, the UFC does not have money. I think that despite what is on their financial sheets, I would not be surprised if a lot of that money is already earmarked for certain projects or payouts or what have you, right? And don't forget, 40% of their debt is still variable and interest rates are still rising. And the Fed hasn't ruled ruled out raising rates again, which I don't know if it'll happen in October, probably not, but November easily could hike again, depending on where inflation and their key indicators and all that stuff goes. So yes, they, they are financially sound. They're in great shape on their own. Don't get me wrong. But like, I think a lot of that has been earmarked. I don't think they're just sitting on a bunch of cash where they're able to kind of use that money for emergencies or, you know, pivot from whatever their current plans are. That's the impression I get because financial statements tell one story, but obviously behind the scenes strategy and, and plans tell a whole different one. And the UFC, in my opinion, is one of the most far thinking strategic entities out there. Like I truly believe they have a five, 10 year plan, 30 year plan or whatever that they're, but definitely a five year plan. They're sticking to pretty heavily. And I think they do pivot, of course, on occasion, but a lot of their pivots are still within the same the same area of where the money was going to be used for anyway, is what I would guess. So I think that's kind of a weakness just because, again, if things go south with some of these threats, they don't necessarily have a ton of cash on hand that they don't already have plans for that they can just throw at it. Um, if they had to pivot things... Will it cause a whole bunch of issues? I'm not saying it necessarily will, depending on, you know, monetary damages and all the other stuff or a settlement would cost them, but um, it would definitely mess up something for them, I would say. It's not, they're not an Apple, just sitting on a ton of cash, ready to invest in whatever they want. You know, that's not the UFC in my opinion. So that's a weakness and a newer weakness for them that I think has been revealed a little bit more Um Lately, something that is now might have been there for a while, but like it's, it's highlighted 
which is important. Um, opportunities. I think the opportunities for the UFC right now are still, you know, very much whatever they want to do, I guess is a, is a way to say that. Um, and what I mean by that is there are still plenty of untapped markets. I think they could bring MMA into, uh, obviously Dana White's talked more about doing stuff in Mexico. There's now a big push to move into the Mexican market, I believe, right? You had the performance center being built there or, or the PI rather the Institute. Um, you, you have, and have had Mexican champions. They're doing the UFC Noche. Like they're still finding certain areas to move into. Um, I think Southeast Asia is another big market that's going to be up on their list of targets next, right? I think the road to UFC thing is definitely a precursor to moving more and more into that market. I know a lot of people have talked about one is dominating that market. Like, well, I mean, if you look at the actual numbers from like Singapore events or things like that, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I, I can easily see the UFC going after that market hard next. I think their initial opportunity right now is in the Latin American, uh, specifically Mexico market right now. Um, but beyond, you know, beyond that particular market, there's still plenty left. There's still areas they can go into. I know India will eventually be a massive market for them that they target. I don't know when that will happen. I think they have, they are waiting on certain growth factors and disposable income probably. Right. But I mean, I, I cannot imagine they won't try to go into that market. The fact that WWE, for example, is just now starting to get in into that market more and more and doing shows there shows the kind of reluctance because they've been around forever doing the same type of thing the UFC has been doing. Um, the fact they're just now getting into it leads me to believe that the UFC will be, you know, quite a bit of a while after because the, I would say the UFC tickets and, you know, fewer frequency of events. I think that's something they, uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit higher cost especially nowadays. Um, they, they've basically through lowering the amount of shows they do outside of the apex and all the other stuff, they've upped the price of admission when they do go out of the market and India's is still not there yet, but it will be eventually. Um, I know they've talked about UFC Africa. I'm sure that will happen despite Francis leaving and, uh, you know, Usman not being champion anymore. You still have Izzy who can, headline a show there um and then kind of be the face of that uh you know or, or you have you know driscus too in in a way right um so there, there's definitely opportunities there but there's still plenty of markets to go after there's more and more sponsorship opportunities with espn bet happening um there's more opportunities to get into further ingrained into you know the betting space there's, there's a lot of things still there. I know that I've talked about before how they're reaching the maturity phase and I still think they are. They're probably transitioning from that rapid growth to maturity phase, but even in the maturity phase that doesn't mean you know you're not growing and making profit. It just makes means it's not at the same level that it used to be. And it's more about focused on again dividends and payouts to shareholders rather than you know um necessarily 
brand new product services, markets, et cetera. And, and there's still opportunity there. I'm sure they're working on things, but the opportunities are, are still very much there to capitalize on these new markets. I would say those are their biggest ones right now, though, is the Latin American market, which they're trying to go after. Um, and next, uh, you know, I, I think it'll probably be Southeast Asia, Africa, and then India after that. That would be my guess in terms of market expansion. Partnerships, I mean, endless. They'll have to backfill some of their crypto ones, right? Because that's fallen off of a cliff. But um, they, they've got opportunities there too. They're they're not hurting for that stuff. Um, so they're in good shape there. So that's where the UFC kind of currently stands. Um, they've got some new threats, new things they have to worry about. Their strengths are still what they've always been, which is, you know, huge amount of profit market dominance. That's far and above, you know, any, any competition, at least at the moment, uh, plenty of opportunities out there, but threats are rising. Um, and, and that's something there I'm sure keeping an eye on and trying to work through. Let me know if you have any questions about that, um, or anything about this analysis, let me know your thoughts if you agree or disagree with some of the SWAT that I went through because I have heard arguments for, you know, markets not really being there uh, due to disposable income and some other things. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But yeah, that's where I currently see personally the UFC right now. And again, this is not a full in-depth SWAT. That's been done episodes and episodes before. This is just really an update from that of new strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats. So let me know what you think if you have any thoughts on that. All right. So next up, let's talk about the Saudi investment in the PFL. This is from the sportico.com article. Uh, I know a couple other articles from Financial Times, some other things popped up. I read through them, but I think the Sportico one does a great job explaining things and has you know a couple of quotes. Um, so from this article... PFL has sold a minority ownership stake in the MMA venture to SRJ Sports Investment, which is a fund that was launched uh, by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. And so basically that's a huge, I think, $650 billion fund Saudi Arabia has, because Saudi Arabia has an ungodly amount of money uh, that was set up to um, public investment fund, has then funds under it. Um, and this SRJ fund is set up to, you know, basically help them invest in sports be because according to the Saudis, they're trying to diversify beyond oil into uh, tourism and other things. There's a lot of comments on sports washing uh, as well in terms of their human rights record. This is a way to kind of get past that. We've seen it before with you know Newcastle United being bought by the Saudis. Uh, Live Golf is the one that probably a lot of people in the States know most about because it challenged the P PGA. Now they're merging and it's a whole thing. Um, but they've got basically a ton of money or to throw around and according to this article, they've thrown a hundred million dollars, according to a, someone familiar with the deal into the PFL, which is a ton. That's a huge investment, right? Um, as we get into it, you know, there's some other articles out there talking about how uh, PFL is worth anywhere from 500 million to $1 billion in valuation did have, uh, you know, a, a good friend of the show, ask me about this um and uh, yeah, a notable mma journalist themselves and they said you know is that legitimate like that valuation um 
not to go too much down the rabbit hole, so to speak, on this, but it is important to keep in mind that valuations, and this will come up again when we talk about the Bellator situation, but valuations do not tie to fundamentals in most startup cases. They just don't. We'll get into it later uh, when we talk about Bellator and the article out from Front Office Sports, I believe, uh, that goes into that. But uh, yeah, hundred million. If if you value PFL anywhere from five hundred to five hundred million to one billion, that's a twenty. 10 to 20% stake in the company, essentially, right? If that's the valuation, how much that actually, you know, translates into stock, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, but Saudi Arabia will get a um, a board member on the PFL, the the fund will, the SRJ fund will have a, a board member that is appointed. Um, Don Davis, the PFL co-founder and chairman, stated in an interview, there is no better global investor with industrial strength capital than PIF to help us achieve our global vision. With this capital, we now have what we need to realize our vision to start the next chapter, become not just number two, but the potential co-leader in MMA. Uh, That's a big statement there, right? That's essentially saying, hey, we've talked about how we're the number two promotion forever, how we're attempting to be number two, how we're differentiating our product from the UFC. We're not going to beat them, but we can be, you know, this alternative product that isn't a clear number two. Um, you know, it's, it's been a smart strategy for them. They have honestly been able to pull it off, which is impressive um, given their sponsorships and, the average viewership, which they peg at about 411,000 viewers. So, so that includes streaming, which is if those numbers are accurate, right? I mean, the streaming ones are always kind of a little iffy, but we know from Terrestrial, they've been higher in the 300K range. I do believe an extra 100,000 or so to make a 400,000 uh, or 411,000 audience based on Nelson ratings, which again are what they are, but that's what we use. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and it's important factor right now because that's the only thing we have. I mean, those are solid ratings, right? Those are much better than what Bellator had done at Paramount. Um, numbers we had gotten from DAZN. Those are are big and they're growing, right? Um, one of the first articles I did at SureDog, which got me some flack, but what was accurate was during the PFL's inaugural season or the second season, right? They were struggling a bit in the ratings um, on ESPN. Um and, and it was kind of a, like they need a big show to pull it off. And then they did have a big show with their championship, and it was great. But, you know, we've seen growth in their ratings, which is important. It's not been that they're stagnant. It's not been that they've been up and down. It's It's been consistent growth year to year, at least from what we're seeing in these numbers. That's big, right? That helps with investment. That helps with getting some of this backing that you need to expand and continue that growth. Uh so, again, big deal there. Um, let's see. What else do we got in this article? We have um, the investment, according to the article, is in the PFL parent company and will support the launch of two new endeavors, PFL League in the Middle East slash North Africa or MANA region and uh, the company Superfight pay-per-view arm. So the funds will also be used to attract more stars of the PFL as well as increased participation in the disciplines of MMA across Saudi Arabia and the MENA region. Saudi Arabia will also host and underwrite a substantial number of PFL pay-per-view events this coming year. So think of it very much like Fight Island, right? Where now that's become kind of a yearly thing, if not 
bi-yearly thing for the UFC where you had that Abu Dhabi agreement um, with the Abu Dhabi tourism board and the UFC to host events there for a certain number of years for an amount of money, which was very lucrative for all parties involved. Um, this is basically Saudi Arabia's response, response to that by they're going to probably have PFL shows in Riyadh a bunch, I would guess. Um, that, that would be my my guess. And we know Saudi Arabia is kind of vying against uh, UAE in terms of trying to become a financial hub uh, in that region, right? Um, it's an interesting time because they're they're both going into sports. Saudi Arabia has invested in WWE quite a bit where they have those crown jewel events and now with PFL, UAE has gone the UFC route, which is a you know bigger MMA market player and brand um, but you know has multiple stars um, from that region or people in the region who support those stars, right? Uh, i.e. Khabib, uh, Islam, Makhachev, you know, there's a lot more star power there, I guess I would say, as of right now. This is Saudi Arabia's response to that. PFL, I'm sure, will sign some people there um, that are from that camp. And and they've they've had, you know, uh, they, they've had Dagestani fighters or people that could be bigger in, in that region, for sure. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the talent acquisitions they're talking about are focused on that region specifically, like homegrown Saudi Arabia, um, Mena region talent, rather than just, you know, bringing in a popular uh, Dagestani or, or honestly a, a Muslim identifying fighter, right? That's, that's generally who gets a lot of um, support in that region. So we'll see where that goes. Um, in regards to the article itself, anything else we need to talk about? Um, here's an important note, right? Prior to the SRJ announcement, PFL had raised $200 million from an all-star roster of investors, including Aries, Nighthead, Luxor Capital, Waverly Capital, Elysian Park Adventures, uh, sports teams owners David Blitzer, Ted Leonosis, uh, Brendan Beck are also part of the cap table, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, um, PFL MENA is supposed or expected to launch in March 2024 on the heels of PFL Europe kicking off this year, which again, I don't know that we'll be able to see that, right? We can't really see it here in your uh in the in the States for Europe. I don't know if we'll get MENA. I know they're basically talking about basic or doing a champions type of tournament, which makes sense if you're gonna kick off these leagues. So you would have a PFL MENA, a PFL Europe. PFL in the States. And this was something that was always part of the plan because you had the original world series of fighting, uh, you know, suing the PFL for their transactions and everything that happened in regards to that. Cause originally PFL wasn't supposed to do more than three events outside of the U S and now it's clear that they are hosting their own leagues to try and get a global tournament where then the winners of each tournament would then be put into world championships, right? It makes sense. It's it's just a natural evolution of the format, especially if you're creating these other leagues. So get all that. Um, but yeah, it's just a interesting time with the launch of PFL. Man, I don't know if it'll be used for other reasons. Probably not this particular round of investment, but uh, SRJ's chairman, uh, Vanderbin Mogren, who has served as the public investment fund for Saudi Arabia's COO since 
2016 will be the person to sit on the PFL board. And he's quoted as saying, SRJ is shaping a new age of sports in Saudi Arabia and accelerating the growth of the domestic sports economy. This investment aims to nurture the local and regional talent pool in martial arts. So they'll, I'm sure, put money into more local promotions, um, making sure they can grow talent that can actually compete in the PFL MENA and then, you know, actually do well right uh, at the world championships because that would be the big fear is you start this league you have people do it and then every year at the world championships they get smoked or they just don't have enough talent um that would be a, a problem for them trying to grow their brand you brand you have to at least have a couple of stars or potential stars um and this is planting the seeds to long-term build and claim a stake to that region because the UFC is really not there, right? This is not a place the UFC goes. They go to the UAE, great, but they're not investing a ton in talent. They've taken a couple of uh, fighters from Eagle FC, that Habib brand, but I mean, that wasn't, again, and, and they, I mean, they've taken it from, uh, what's the name of it? Uh, I mean, there's UAE Warriors, but then there's also another big, Big regional promotion out there where a lot of guys get sourced to the UFC. Uh, that's escaping me right now. But so they've done some of that, but it's not really built out this type of infrastructure and, um, you know, farming system, I guess, is probably the polite way to put it, um, that the PFL is doing with this, right? They're basically trying to build a farm system in MENA to get talent to be be well positioned to be big name fighters that then they could say are the best in the world or can compete with the best in the world. Right. That's makes sense. I mean, we've seen what stars in particular countries can do, especially when the whole country is behind them. We've seen the numbers Makachev can draw, what Chamayev can draw, what, you know, Habib can draw. It, it's easy. Uh, most of the big stars, Right in MMA, especially pay-per-view stars are people that come from a certain country and get their whole country behind them. doesn't mean they're not popular in other countries, but it's, you know, McGregor, right? Um, Rousey for the States. If you want to go that route, um, Adesanya for Oceania region of Australia and New Zealand. I mean, that's really what helps propel them into crossover stardom. So makes sense to do. Um, SR, oh, SRJ is pronounced surge apparently. So that's fun. Surge. Oh man, what a great soft drink, right? Um, but yes, then it goes on to uh, do some analysis on this. Uh, another important note on this article is PFL has attracted two dozen brand sponsors, including Bose, Bud Light, Geico, Cellulose Energy Drink, Company has 20 media distribution partners outside the U.S. stream uh, that stream events to 150 countries. ESPN holds the U.S. rights under a deal that expires this year. So this is, again, going to be pivotal in them getting a better media deal. Um, and events this year on the Worldwide Leader have averaged uh, 411,000 viewers, which I talked about, up 30% over last year. And it says now represents 40% of the UFC audience. I don't know if I... I don't know about that one, but sure, we'll, we'll roll with that. Um, and then Don Davis 
at the end of this article says uh, they've had great conversations with ESPN about continuing the relationship, but as the interest in the marketplace has been high, he expects a decision most likely in October for its 2024 U.S. media rights partner, which is just next month, right? Um, and that sounds about right, especially if the deal is expiring this year. Yeah. This investment is a double-edged sword when it comes to media rights for the PFL. Um, in that, right, Live Golf had a huge problem getting a U.S. media rights partner um, given Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Right. Uh, so live struggle with that. I don't think this will be the same case with PFL. Right. We And we've seen Saudi Arabia be able to invest in certain companies and be fine. WWE is the prime example of that, where they do crown jewel and uh, biggest world, greatest Royal rumble, whatever that was. And a couple of other events, right. Um, super showdown or whatever it's called. I don't know. Um, but but WWE has not been banned. There have been talent who have been like, I'm not going there or, you know, uh, have huge issues with it and all that stuff, but has not been banned by any means um, and, and canceled, quote unquote. They're they're booming right now uh, business wise. So it's not a, a complete blacklist against or black mark rather against uh, the PFL, but take ESPN slash Disney, for example, right? Um that's going to be interesting in that given Disney's family friendly demeanor, uh, given their uh, political leanings and, and things they've stated publicly, giving, you know, a, a multi-million dollar year, really tens of millions of dollars years probably um, to a company and then having that company be, supported by um saudi arabia will be a big big strain i would imagine right um especially as disney kind of goes through what we talked about last time this revamp of cutting certain services trying to be more profitable if they think pfl can give them more viewership and they do the risk analysis or cost benefit analysis uh maybe they'll still make a pretty strong offer if they truly think it's that crucial to keeping ESPN alive. But given that they already have the UFC deal, my guess is that would be their prime target, right? If you're going to go after an MMA promotion, meteorites deal, and you're trying to cut costs, PFLs would be the one to go. And UFC is obviously the one to keep. Um, I, I think this hurts their negotiations with ESPN at least. Uh, I would actually go far as to say, because I was already on the fence, given the current economic environment and given where Disney is, um, I might go so far as to say where I was on the fence and leaning probably maybe not PFL not getting the offer they wanted. This might push them over the edge of going somewhere else. Um, could easily see them ending up at Amazon, right? I think that's the next big partner who's had the one championship deal. I'm not sure what metrics they've gotten out of that, how they feel about that, but they were obviously trying to be a big, um, a big bidder in the UFC war. Um, 
I don't know that they'll still be in that position, right? Uh, Post-pandemic stuff has hurt them. There's been layoffs. There's been some negative PR there. I, hard to say. I mean, they're still doing fine, but it's it's hard to say where they land on all of that. I would imagine they're at least going to throw their hat into the ring. Um, another big one that I could easily see making more of a push would be uh, Warner Brothers. W, uh, WBD Discovery, right? David Zasloff has talked about trying to go after UFC rights. And he's done a bunch of cost cutting on the HBO side, um, aka creating movies and then not releasing them. Although Disney has taken that playbook recently too to save money, which is still wild to me. Um, but that's been happening uh, with Warner Brothers Discovery. I could see them going after PFL. Um, right. They're already, they've got AEW and they very much enjoy having them under contract. Uh, that's been one of a big driver for new viewership, uh, for WBD. So that's important. They've talked about wanting more sports properties. This could be one where again, it's not the UFC by any means, but, um, it's something that would be attractive to them in that it could help more viewers go especially the linear um, linear viewership. Although I would imagine they'd probably still, they'd do a combination similar to what ESPN does now, right? Where they do HBO Max and then uh, um, linear viewership and then do pay-per-view buys through a particular partner. I don't know if that'd be Ble- Bleacher Report, which is what AEW does um, and what they did for one championship. So I would imagine that might be where they they had right because it's all owned by turner sports um but i can see them throwing their hat into the ring really depends on how much zaslav believes in it and if he thinks he cannot make a bid on the ufc rights because he's been open about trying to get the ufc rights and i i can't imagine he won't attempt to bid on that too but pfl is coming up much sooner because pfl's deal ends this year the ufc's deal is is still got a ways to go so and i think we'll face stuff stiffer competition so we'll see on that front um you could see netflix but i again i I don't know um they've got enough capital but they're hemorrhaging subscribers this could be a way to bring them subscribers back they could view that as a as an option so i yeah i I could see netflix trying to get into that game because sports you know with f1 that's been a big thing for them i could see it i don't know again if it will happen or not but could see them too Either way, I think this pushes them out from ESPN a little bit, uh, this particular deal. And that influx of cash, again, is massive. It's huge in terms of what it could do for PFL. So I think you'll see them try and sign some bigger name free agents. Obviously, they're going to you know start this other league. They're still not in the black, right? They're still not making money. Don Davis said that they would start making money next year. Probably the media rights deal is a huge part of that. So... We'll see where that goes, but yeah, I mean, real big development there, obviously, um, and something that we're going to talk about in the next segment in terms of acquiring Bellator, how that affects all of that. So, all right, next thing we're going to briefly talk about is uh, the update on PFL acquiring Bellator, or if that's happening, right? Uh, rumor's been out there for quite some time. There's been a new article by Front Office Sports that talks about that they're in talks, right? Uh, there's not a deal in place. There's been interest. Um, again, we've heard 
varying things here. Uh, and I, I mean, according to one source in this, according to this article, is that the investment was reported this week, but closed about six months ago when it comes to the surge sports investment. Um, and talks have been happening around this as you know for a while. Bellator is valued as much as $500 million in the deal, according to this article. A transaction would pro- primarily be in cash with Paramount getting some equity in PFL. So again, sharing some, some of the equity, uh, obviously giving up 10 to 20% to the Saudi investment fund. Um, and, you know, this would be a little bit more, I would guess under 5%, uh, but $500 million is still a lot, right? That's near what PFL is valued right now. Um, and, you know, you've had Scott, Coker kind of deny that this is happening, at least outright. Um, you've had multiple reports on this, right? I, I've heard so many things. You've heard it from, you know, John Nash. You've heard it from uh, front office. You've heard it from Todd Atkins, who's reported on this back in April. I have heard a ridiculous amount of rumors around this. Um, things ranging, again, from, you know, this deal was about to be done and now it's dead and Bellator is going under uh, to, oh, this deal is definitely 100% done according to a Bellator fighter, right? Uh, I believe it was Aaron McKenzie on Reddit posted something uh, that said like, yeah, no, it's a done deal. They just haven't announced it yet. My take is this. I think that it will happen because it makes too much sense not to from a a standpoint if you're pfl and you're trying to boost up your roster with current notable names right i talked about this last week where like i mean they're not people that are necessarily going to draw the casual viewer but they were they will help maintain and bring in the hardcore viewership you'll get more media attention right you bring over uh the pitbull brothers you bring over aj mckee you bring over all these guys it'll be a big deal They'll be limited by the term- tournament structure, which may go away. Um, I still don't see it going away fully, though, because that's kind of their whole spiel. And with the new leagues and the world championships, it's going to be something. But I think the most important thing to note here is, is that the deal, according to this report, is not done. Right? It is not a done deal. It is not 100% like we're good. Um, the valuations are a bit of prominent importance because you're talking about a company that could be valued at the size of itself buying another company, right? So PFL could be valued at $500 million and it's going to buy another $500 million company. It's going to basically double uh, its size according to that stuff. Um, And as I mentioned before, valuations are so unhinged and unattached from reality nowadays, especially in the startup world. It's, ridiculous you cannot take them as oh based on the fundamentals and yada 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 this is this is how much it's worth no that's part of it but a huge part of it i guarantee it's a massive part for bellator and for pfl who are both not making money by the way um and you see this in unicorn startups uber lyft peloton uh we work obviously the biggest one it's so much like, oh, potential IP property and potential growth, um, you know, assets and, and things that are all kind of vague and BS. And that's where so much, though they're counted as real assets in the valuation uh, and they mean nothing. 
right? We work with one at one point was valued at $47 billion, which is insane for a co-working space company. For they they were put at $47 billion, and I think their most recent valuation in August was $270 million. That's nuts, right? How does a company lose all that valuation when honestly they haven't lost like they've had to shut some space and they've, they, you know, had some issues, especially with the pandemic, et cetera. But like, it's not like they had to basically shutter everything. And there's how that company was ever valued at $47 billion is just greed. And you know, it's, it's what they do is they sell you on it. Valuations are essentially one company getting a feel for what the market will pay for the other. It is not a like, look at all of these financials and all these things. And we have a tried and true mathematical, you know, calculation and, and proof that says like, this is basically what valuation should be. No, it's for bigger companies that have been around longer. Sure. It's much more technical, much easier to tie the wealth in certain areas. But I mean, even the UFC, right. It's valued at like 12 billion or whatever it is. Like they're making a ton of money. Sure. But like they're, based on their fundamentals alone, there's no way that they're 12 billion, right? It's just not. Uh, so same thing here. Don't take these valuations as like, oh my gosh, like we've got like, no, the depends on what company was hired to do this. Depends on what they're saying is like invaluable IP and all this garbage. Like, yeah, it's, it's more art than science, honestly. Getting back to whether or not it's going to happen. I think it will occur. I do, but I, I do not see it as a done deal that so many other people are, are clamoring about um, and making big noise about. And I continue to hear crazy rumors about stuff that it's like, oh, is this legitimate? Like, because I've heard it from people, you know, again, I almost never report like, oh, I've heard like a legitimate source. Like I'm going to break some news here or some other things. There have been a couple of times, right? Like um, Francis going into boxing. Like I had heard from, People I, I trust, but I wasn't going to be like, oh, breaking news, this has happened for sure. But based on all the other factors and what I knew, like, yeah, that made sense. I am going to put my stamp on that as 100%. I will not do that with PFL acquiring Bellator. That's what I, I will leave it. I think it will happen, but until I actually hear something that says it's a done deal, I will not put my stamp on, oh, that's going to happen. It makes sense to you, but this deal could easily fall apart, especially given the new investment from, you know, the Saudi PIF fund and what they want to do in terms of, you know, their thoughts on it. Cause they'll have a say in some things. It's still going to be up to the majority shareholders, but I mean, you're not going to completely ignore them, especially with a huge influx of cash like that. And obviously wanting to keep them happy. So it is not a done deal. Could it happen? Yes. Do I think it will happen? Yes. But I, it could also fall apart. So do not take this as, Oh my gosh, like it's a done deal everything's going like, it's just a matter of time. Like, no, I would not put my stamp on this yet. Not quite yet. All right. So all of that context I just went through and yes, I went through a couple rabbit holes, but they were important to go through. I think just to really paint the picture. Um, all that context I just went through leads us to this inevitable question. Can the PFL truly become a rival and a challenger to the UFC's MMA dominance in the industry and in the space. And 
given everything I just went through, given what we know right now, um, I think you have to look at it through a couple lenses, right? Short term, no, not at all. Short term, you still have the UFC contracts, which restrict all of the big names that are there. Um, so I would imagine, again, unless things go incredibly fast and a lot of things fall into place much sooner than expected, which is possible, but I still don't think is going to happen. Um, I would say in the next 12 to 18 months, there's no real threat, right? It's it's something the UFC has to monitor, but it's not a, a imminent problem for them because they still have so many of their popular fighters under long-term contracts. We talked about the five-year uh, contract sunset clause and how the UFC has gotten around that by adjusting their contracts recently. Um it is is not a scenario where if more and more money is pumped into this, you know, uh, suddenly all of the UFC stars are leaving. It's not a live golf PGA comparison. I've seen that compared too many times by too many journalists and, and people that should know better. That is not the correct comparison at all. Um, in live and PGA, at any point, you know, right, somebody could say, I'm not going to do PGA, I'm going to do live instead. Like, and right, if there was the whole fight about how they wanted to do both, like they want to sign up and do live events, but they also want to do PGA events. And then you had the whole legal battle and then you had the merger, all that fun stuff. Uh, but, you know, that was a huge sticking point to all that stuff. That's not the case in the UFC. You've got fighters right now that as it stands, barring the UFC antitrust lawsuit outcome as it stands are, are tied down for too long champions are not going to be able to get out in their prime to just to hop over and go to the PFL for a certain amount of money, even if they could, right? Even if let's say next six months to a year, uh, you get a settlement or an injunctive relief or something that limits contracts or frees up contracts for UFC fighters. They can now hop over to PFL and all that stuff. Keep in mind that PFL would have to use the majority of the money they just received to lure over all the champions and that you'd have to get the champions to go and, and have them all just easily be like, I want to go to whoever pays me the highest. Could that happen eventually? Sure. But you have fighters talking about right now, multiple fighters, Adesanya talks about a couple others, especially the top stars. They, they often talk about how the UFC is the best or the UFC pays more money behind the scenes. You have no idea, blah, blah, blah. It's not that they wouldn't entertain another offer, but they're not all like Francis, right? You don't see other stars betting on themselves and trying to write out their contract. Now you might see that a little bit more, right? Because some of these guys may see, okay, like there possibly is another option out there. Maybe I will fight out my contract and then test free agency. Sure, right? We've seen free agency grow a bit in MMA in the past, you know, five, six years. Um, but it's not going to be this giant exodus, I think. Even if contracts immediately freed up, it could. If that particular catalyst happened, it could because it might just be such a big seismic shift. Maybe you'd have champions negotiate more. But, I mean, the UFC would almost certainly, for some of their guys, right, for O'Malley, Adesanya, Jones, would still pony up quite a bit of money for known proven draws. And 
they'd take a hit financially like that rather than probably let all their champions hop over to PFL, especially all at once. It would take time. It'd take a fair amount of time for PFL to acquire enough talent that it erodes this brand perception that's out there and that just permeates right in in culture you i train ufc we talk about it all the time or or the sport of the ufc is like they're to the casual fan the ufc is still the best of the best they're not paying attention to anything we're talking about not at all the only way they start to look at another promotion is if a real big name or a real popular name that maybe that's what they pony up for a pay-per-view buys like adesanya or jones suddenly hops the fence then maybe okay cool and, and we'll talk about that in our last segment of the podcast. But um, for the most part, right, they are not tuning into any of this. They don't care. They're going to turn into the UFC when it's an intriguing fight and they want to throw down money once every couple months or years or what have you. So casual fan, it's whatever. Hardcore fans, the hardcore, hardcore fans, they're still going to watch both, right? They might start to say, well, PFL is better. Sure, but like, People that watch PFL religiously now or Bellator now and UFC now, all three down, they're not going to stop watching all three. It's not like all of a sudden the UFC crumbles. It will take time for the PFL to rise to actually challenge. So short term, I see no real challenger emerging. I see a number two getting much stronger, sure, but still miles and miles away from the UFC. It's not an empire falling overnight type scenario. Now, long term, Here's where it can get interesting, right? Um, if the antitrust lawsuit does cause the UFC to have to either cut back on signing certain fighters or keeping certain fighters, right? Because of monetary damages in either a settlement, uh, a trial would be humongous, right? If, if they actually lost a trial and that was upheld, then you're talking about maybe an overnight collapse, but that's still years away. Um, or I would imagine years away, I guess, given you'd, you'd have to have the appeal not go through the trial start date in March or April. Uh, and then, you know, by the time May, June rolls around the verdict, I'm sure the verdict would be appealed uh, at some level, right? Because they're only appealing class certification. That's very important to note, too. The UFC can still appeal post trial if they actually went through a trial and they'll probably try to settle. But I still think appeals is going to pick up on the class certification, but, but you'd have to have all those things lined up and have contracts be reduced to a maximum of a couple of years or, you know, some measure of, okay, contracts are no longer nearly as restrictive as they are in the UFC. If that happens and the UFC continues to get this money from the Saudi fund and starts to grow in that regard and take away fighters, then yes, it could eventually start to wear and it should right hypothetically cause the brand of the best promotion to lose its luster around the ufc over time but it's still gonna take years right like the ufc will still be known as the best mma brand and promotion for a while i think even if you had a, a semi-max exodus over to pfl which the ufc wouldn't allow to some extent because they would shift money and do what they needed to do there um to keep at least a couple stars there's no way they'd let everyone go away um they're still going to be recognized right as this major major force and they're also much more likely right now to throw money at stars and take the hit now 
until they get the new media rights deal signed, right? That's coming up soon. So if all of a sudden the trial goes awry or contracts are open and PFL gets an opportunity to start taking uh, fighters away, they will keep the ones they really want to. They'll throw more money at them. It will. That's a much easier pill to swallow where they take a hit in their stock and their their finances now in order to secure, again, a huge bump in media rights, which is their lifeblood as of right now, right? Um, they're, they're going to do that. There's no way they, they open up the possibility of letting PFL poach their biggest draws before they have a media rights agreement signed. There's no way. I, I can't see it. UFC is far too smart for that. There's, there's no way. So, yes, it could happen. It could erode on the UFC's ability to do this. PFL would have to continue to grow. Their stars would have to continue to shine a bit more, right? We don't know exactly how the star power would translate um, once they go to the PFL because it's a tournament format. We've seen the PFL sign some bigger UFC vet names who then don't win the championship, Right. Um, a couple of vets have gone over and won after, you know, uh, being cut from the UFC or opting to leave, but a lot of them have not, right? Pettis was a huge signing. He has not panned out in the PFL in terms of winning the belt and doing all that stuff. Um, Shane Burgos just recently, you know, they did a lot of, of gymnastics given the Nathan Levy and some of the other, right. Uh, or not Nathan Schultz, uh, fight. Right. And, and the whole fiasco of like, well, you didn't hold up to your you, technically Shane Burgos. You shouldn't be in here. But Nathan Scholl, you know, these teammates didn't fight to their fullest. So we're pulling them out like all this ridiculousness that I imagine will end up with lawsuits. Uh, they got Shane Burgos in the playoffs. He lost. Right. And it, it was an amazing fight. It was one of the best fights the PFL has ever put on. It worked out for them. But Burgos is not going to be holding the belt at the end of the day. Right. Um, that's important. Because you're paying money for these stars, right? For BCO for Doom. You're paying money for these name UFC guys that are hopefully bringing an audience. And then your homegrown talent is winning, which is great because it showcases, okay, maybe BFL has competitors and challenge, you know, of course. But you still want those guys to go far, right? You still want them to be on TV, to make the playoffs, to do all that fun stuff. So you, you can never completely count on it being completely merit-based, which is, I mean, again, I, something I applaud the PFL for. I love that it's a tournament merit-based style. Could the season point system use some refinement? Sure, but they're tweaking it. They're they're working on it. Um, but it's, you know, and now they're bringing in uh, USADA, which is important given all of the, the people that got cut this year due to drug issues. Um, so yeah, they're making the right steps and they're growing in the right way. But even if you get those star power talent acquisitions, they might not pan out the way PFL wants them to. And that could cause an issue, right? You need them to at least go far enough in the tournament or win a belt once or twice so that it keeps the people that came over engaged because that's who they're mainly looking to see. And yes, you'll have some people where if they lose, okay, they're going to, you know, continue to watch PFL and say, Oh, and I'm all about the guy to beat them. Right. Uh, but like, like Clay Collar, but it, it doesn't translate one-to-one. We've seen that with McGregor's, you know, losing recently, right? It's not all of the McGregor fans certainly became amazing Dustin Poirier fans. No, 
they still, that's not the case. Um, they're still doing some of them have sure, but like they're still mostly McGregor fans. When Rousey lost to home, it's not like all of a sudden home became this mega star. Did she get a lot of attention and fans and, and a star rub? Of course. Same as Nate Diaz did when he first beat McGregor, but McGregor is still a bigger draw. Rousey is still a bigger draw. Probably always will be. So you've got to have those guys still win. And that's, you know, a risk with the tournament style. Um, it can happen though. You need a lot of things to fall in place, right? If, if appeal on the antitrust lawsuit goes in favor of the UFC at some point, I mean, this all dies because PFL is not going to be able to break that grip given the contract lengths and all that stuff. So many things have to go a particular way for this to happen, but there is now a path. There is now a path for PFL to challenge the UFC. It is a long and arduous one. It requires a fair amount of luck, uh, patience, all that fun stuff. But I'm sure PFL is on that strategic plan right now. I have no doubt that that's where they're heading. Nevertheless, it, it is not something that's going to happen overnight, I don't believe. Um, it technically could. I could technically be wrong here, and I'll eat crow if it does, but I just don't see it. Um, it's something that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of, of wins and in, in things that the PFL cannot control. Right. But yeah, we could see it long-term. I, I do believe that there is a possibility of it where there was no real possibility before. And every company, you know, eventually every empire falls, every company has trouble. Like, that's, that's, at some point, the UFC will probably not become the leader anymore. I do believe that because I don't know a single company that's literally maintained that dominance forever, right? Um, whether it's just obsolescence or, you know, loss of interest, what have you, you know. E even the NFL talked about struggling viewership and all this stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, you lose your viewership. Uh, Gen Z is not nearly into regular sports and combat sports. I mean, Things change. Every empire falls eventually, in my opinion. So that will one day happen for the UFC. I don't think it's necessarily anytime. It's definitely not anytime soon. And it is a narrow path for it to happen in the next five years. Five, ten years would be my guess. But we'll see. It's interesting and exciting. That's for sure. It's the most legitimate challenge to the UFC since Strike Force and Pride. I would say that providing certain things go a different way, right? If, if the antitrust lawsuit blows up and UFC maintains their contracts, well, then it's it's basically the equivalent of when Bellator came on the scene. It's a bigger Bellator. It's probably going to get more traction in, in a lot of ways, but I mean, they it's it'd be very hard to overcome that deficit without some legal external intervention, right? So that's where I see it. Let me know your thoughts on it. Let me know if you agree, disagree with my analysis. But right now, I think short term, there's no real threat here. Um, long term, yeah, there's a path to the PFL becoming a legitimate challenger. But it, it's a long term path. And a lot of things have to happen. Still, we're still we're step two of 50, 100 to that happening, in my opinion. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but still interesting times, nonetheless. All right, now one thing 
to also consider here, and I've been asked about and seen, I think, an article on here and there, uh, given, you know, the live PGA comparisons, is could Endeavor sell its stake in the UFC, right? Like, let's say PFL hits that path of antitrust lawsuit, opens up contracts, they get a, even more influx from Surge, uh, and they're able to just spend a ton of money for big name stars, you know, similar to what Saudi Arabia is doing in multiple other uh, industries, making it much more like live golf PGA, right? If that's the case. Um, let's say the antitrust lawsuit opens up the door, PFL really starts to go after them. Could Endeavor sell its stake in the UFC? Well, here's the amazing thing that I don't think a lot of people have realized. Endeavor has already started to insulate themselves in case that happens. And it's not about PFL necessarily becoming the big thing. It's about the antitrust lawsuit. That's part of them spinning off and doing the TKO company with WWE and UFC, right? Endeavor stock took a hit. WWE stock took an even bigger hit when the Saudi Arabia PFL investment news came out. I think that was a market overreaction where they just didn't understand the actual business well enough. Um, you know, that's, in my opinion, I do not take this as financial advice or market advice or whatever. I do not have any background or at least enough background to make recommendations. But that I have heard from other people that that was a good opportunity to buy the dip, so to speak, because this was kind of an overreaction to a perceived threat that people didn't really understand. And I would agree, right, based on what I just talked about. But Endeavor offloaded a fair and will offload a fair amount of their debt to TKO, which is closing in September, and they'll own 51% of the company. But that 51% will include WWE revenue, which honestly should not be affected by that side of the house is not affected by this, right? Like they have AEW to contend with, but AEW is a whole mess. And that's a whole nother type of podcast to get into that stuff. Um, no, WWE's business is booming right now. So that side of the house is going to remain fine. And Endeavor will get 51% of that money no matter what. Um, the UFC, if the antitrust lawsuit hits and goes south, like Endeavor will definitely take a hit, sure, but they've already partially divested, right? They kept just enough. There's a reason they kept just enough money to control, but not, you know, expose themselves. They've they've been working on the, you know, European basketball and PBR and and all these other things. They're trying to create that huge environment to insulate themselves. This is part of that. Like they are not in a position where UFC, which they were prior to the TKO deal, right? Where UFC goes under, then they may go under or they're in real big trouble. No, they've already partially insulated themselves. 49% of their company now, right? You're, you're not taking on 49% of the UFC's issues. I mean, that's not exactly how it works. I'm not going to sit here and, and say it is, but you get my point. They've already partially insulated themselves by spinning off through this reverse Morris trust, the UFC into a separate entity that merges with WWE. So could they sell their stake? Sure. They definitely could. If things went real South with the antitrust lawsuit and damages and all that stuff, of course they could, but they're not going to crumple under it like they would have before. 
And my guess is they would try to avoid selling it if they could, but it's not, it is no longer the primary lifeblood for Endeavor's company. It's still a ton of money that they need, right? Don't get me wrong, especially while they're trying to get their other businesses up and running. And and those are trending in the right direction. So it's starting to work. Um, But they now have WWE's revenue to help boost them. And they have divested enough that, you know, and then are getting money and I'm sure we'll get a huge cash infusion and offload a bunch of their debts that they're not nearly as exposed as they were a year ago. Right. The antitrust lawsuit gets resolved anywhere in a normal time frame, not Judge Bulware doing his ridiculous deferment of three years. Right. This happens. This whole scenario of the antitrust lawsuit happens a year or two ago. It's a whole nother story. Um, and, and Endeavor may be looking for a way out or selling a minority stake immediately. And it's a whole issue. That's not the case anymore. They still could sell, but they're they're not in the same exposure realm of possibility even that they were a year ago. So yes, they could sell if things went south. They hypothetically they could sell for the right price right now, right? If they really were ready to kind of move on from the UFC, I don't think they are. Um, But yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's a hundred percent their own possibility. If things went south, they could. Yes. But they also don't need to anymore. So that's my opinion on that. All right. Last thing we're going to go over real quick is the uh, Jake Paul, Nate Diaz boxing pay-per-view buys. According to Dan uh, Raphael, who I, I, again, don't know well enough to say like, yes, 100% trust this, but it seems I'm seeing enough people endorse it that I'm going to trust in these numbers for now anyway. 450K buys uh, for that pay-per-view. That's big. And that shows that, you know, Diaz... And Paul can still draw, especially Diaz, right? Like we've seen Paul struggle with other previous opponents to draw. Um, 450K buys is, is Diaz has some drawing power. I think that'll play into if Paul uh, and Diaz actually do fight in the cage, PFL, right? I know they've talked about the rematch there, but um, if if Nate ends up fighting for PFL, which could happen, they, he could get signed, right? He is a free agent. Um that could be big because that, that's a that's a good buy rate. I think a lot of expectations, my own even, were like 300K, 350K range. Anything above that grade, everything below that, uh, maybe, maybe an issue. So 450K is, is a win, I would say. Um, and yeah, it is a big signal that, again, you don't have to necessarily be champ. Uh, if, if you get a big enough name in MMA, you can translate translate that into boxing pay-per-views um, and is another option that fighters can look to take in terms of a substitute instead of, you know, free agency of PFL or UFC, maybe you go into boxing and you get, you know, more money. Cause that's a 50, 50 split too for Diaz Paul, which is big. That's a lot of money for Diaz. Probably the most he's ever made. I would imagine. So again, it's, I think that trend continues with, with, prominent MMA fighters going into boxing. I, I just think that's what, what keeps happening. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I know it was a deep dive into things. Let me know if you have any questions about anything I covered. Um, hope it was helpful. Hope it made sense. Would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, Cause a lot of discourse going on around about this, a lot of people not seeing the full picture. Hopefully I painted a full enough picture for you in terms of what's happening. Um, 
that you have the full context, can make a good informed decision. But we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, like, subscribe, bell notification as always. And until next time, get money.